did I meet? 40 here. Just uh, looking over Sydney Harbour, looking across to Watson's Bay and uh, listening to Sex Scandal and Sisterhood, 50 years of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. Way from Dallas Courthouse through the Supreme Court, where it would ignite a battle that's still raging. Okay, so the Dallas Cowboys debuted their cheerleaders in 1972. It was the year Deep Throat hit American theaters, launching a vogue for porno chic. And it was the year Title IX passed, opening the door for women in athletics. The Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders were a watershed too, combining the precision of the East Texas drill team, the Kilgore Rangerettes, with the class of the Radio City Rockettes, and adding a dose of old-fashioned Texas razzle-dazzle. We're looking for an all-American sexy girl. Choreographer Texie Waterman once told a local news station, taking a bite out of that word sexy. And this internal contradiction of being good, but also a bit bad, of being innocent, but also a bit dangerous, became an essential part of their brand and their explosion. To follow the Dallas Cowboys... So I don't think I've seen any Dallas Cowboys insignia regalia since I've been in Australia. There was a time in the 1980s when Channel 4 in Britain started showing NFL games and, and Britain developed you know, a large number of NFL fans. But uh, that, that fairly quickly died away when Britain started the Premier League instead of televising more of their own homegrown sports. So, you know, the World Cup is going on right now and there are billions, billions of fans. But uh, when, when the Super Bowl gets played, there may be four million people around the world will watch the Super Bowl live, right? So, you know, maybe 120 million Americans, but only about 4 million people around the world. So, National Football League, uh, like, that's largely an American sport. I mean, the, the English sports are far more dominant, generally speaking, than the American sports. They attract far more world attention. So, the NFL is just curiosity in England and in Australia and in Europe. Like when, you, when you see how many millions and billions of people watch the World Cup, right? Uh, you know, the American sports of baseball and the National Football League just don't compete with that. So Sydney and Melbourne having big live viewings. The Socceroos are playing at uh, 6 a.m. on Sunday morning in uh, Darling Harbour. So I'm going to try to get up early, get over to the a live viewing with my fellow fans in Sydney. His cheerleaders over the next half century is to watch the pop sexualization of women on television, on billboards, magazine covers, in swimsuit column. Look, the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders didn't sexualize women. Right? We're, we're evolutionarily designed to sexualize women. Now, things like Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders and sex nudity and movies, TV shows, newspapers, all right, that can amp up these natural passions, right, so society can choose to be modest or it can choose to amp things up. ...that became making out DVDs that became a reality TV show. Though their spot in culture is singular, their struggles and triumphs speak to women's rising place in the world, how we look, how we behave. Yeah, women's rising place in the world, right? That comes at the price of women's falling price 
place in the world in other areas, such as you know, the traditional woman who gets married, has kids, is a mother. Right? So women's liberation and feminism you know, raised possibilities, freedoms, and social status for certain women, such as those who weren't going to be settled down by marriage and children, while simultaneously lowering freedom, status, opportunities for other women and for certain men. Who and what determines our value? These days, they're seen as a legacy. Okay, who or what determines our value? Our value is determined by what we do for other people. So if your beauty provides joy and inspiration to people, that's a power. If your eloquence provides joy and inspiration to people, that's a power. If your confidence provides needed services, that reliability to people, that's a power, right? Our value depends upon what we can give to other people. A throwback to another era. Their instantly recognizable uniform was donated to the Smithsonian in 2018, a piece of American lore alongside Dorothy's slippers and Abraham Lincoln's top hat. But the squad has also slipped from its pedestal. Across the NFL, the past decade has brought fair wage lawsuits, sexual harassment claims. Right, none of these things have uh, reduced the, the pedestal of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. Right? I mean, who had them on a pedestal anyway? aside from they're sexy and fun to look at. And bad press. Oh, one of the things I was amazed at is in televised National Football League games, they only show the, the cheerleaders for a maximum of something like one and a half seconds or two seconds. They have a limit for, for how long they'll show cheerleaders at a time. And it's like really short, it's something like two seconds. Professional cheerleaders for other teams are moving away from sexy sideline dancing, adopting more modest uniforms, and adding men to their squads. The oh yeah, that's great, man. Nothing like adding men to a squad. More modest uniforms, more modest routines. Like adding, adding a transsexual to the squad, I mean, that's really going to appeal to National Football League fans. Lina Panthers recently brought on the first openly trans cheerleader. Oh man, I bet that was a huge, huge hit with the fans. Nothing I like more going to a football game and getting to feast my eyes on some delicious transsexual cheerleader. Whether fans wanted these changes is another matter. In February, scandal hit the Dallas Cowboys when ESPN broke the story that the team's number one PR guy, Richard Dalrymple, had been accused of using his phone to film for cheerleaders in their dressing room back in 2015. Yeah, that sounds like something out of Porky's magazine. Right? Women have been posing for men, and men have been taking pictures of women for as long as it's been possible. Now, this was apparently done without their consent, so yeah, that, that ends a whole different room. Resulting in a $2.4 million settlement. The company line had always been that the cheerleaders were protected. The extensive rules that had been put in place decades earlier. Yeah, okay, you can try to protect people, but uh, just because you can't protect them perfectly, is it then all pointless? Right? Having rules, procedures, an ethos, a culture, right, to protect women, all right, that's all a good thing, but uh, no, no form of protection is going to be perfect dictating everything from how the cheerleaders dressed to the way they conducted themselves off the field were supposedly for their own good, meant to guard their safety as well as their image. Yet here was the team's own PR guy being accused of creating a PR disaster. Wow, just imagine that, an organization 
is not able to exert 100% control over all its employees at all times. Shocking. Anything that is human is susceptible to corruption. A squad that prided themselves on wholesome sexiness. This was seedy indeed. The Cowboys and... De so uh, Skip Bayless says the best film about the National Football League and the best novel is North Dallas 40 by Peter Gent, a former player for the Dallas Cowboys. I remember reading this novel in the summer of 1980. It kind of shook me up a bit. A, unflinching, accurate, you know, fair look at the Dallas Cowboys. Buffalo looks like they're moving to 9-3. and three. Yeah, they're just absolutely destroying the New England Patriots. Is, is Bill Belichick just a 500 coach without Tom Brady? I mean, it sure looks like he's just another guy, just another coach, a 500 coach without Tom Brady. Bill Rimple denied any wrongdoing. But my phone blew up with cheerleaders I'd gotten to know during the year I spent interviewing them for the Texas monthly podcast, America's Girls. How had this happened? Had it happened other times? On sports radio and Twitter and in casual conversation, I heard questions that had dogged me since I'd started this project. Did the world still need professional cheerleaders? Did we? Did we need them? Right, they add entertainment. Sports is entertainment. Now, sports is also largely about community. Right? Sports is, is about creating a sense of connection. Right? So, people who go into a world that, that feels disconnected, right? they, they want to connect. And so, that's probably the main power of sports. Remember when I told Ford about Josh Allen? five or five years ago. Yeah, Josh Allen, quite the quarterback. Looks like he's absolutely putting it to the uh, Patriots. Okay, I've been reading a great book. It's called Socconomics, the 2022 edition, by European men and American women win and billionaire owners are destined to lose. So this book says that... Uh, the world's most innovative soccer country is Germany. And ex-players have now lost their monopoly on managerial jobs. So yes, it should not be written in stone that only former players can become soccer managers. So the German Soccer Federation now has a training course to certify professional coaches for people who did not play professionally. So it helps to know the smell of the stables in professional soccer, but there's only one aspect to being a coach, how you pedagogically, analytically, communicatively. <laughs> okay, how has soccer remained such an incompetent business for so long? Well, soccer clubs tend to hire incompetent staff. Baseball for a long time was just as incompetent. In Moneyball, great book, Michael Lewis asked, why among baseball executives and scouts there really is no level of incompetence that won't be tolerated. But the main reason was that uh, baseball has structured itself less as a business or as a social club. There are many ways to embarrass the club, but being bad at your job is not one of them. The greatest offense a club member can commit is not ineptitude, but disloyalty. So club members are selected for their club ability. Clever outsiders are not clubbable, they talk funny, they go around pointing out the things that people inside the club are doing wrong. So, 
the staff of soccer clubs traditionally tend not merely to be incompetent, they're also novices because the turnover is so rapid. Whenever a new manager arrives, he generally brings in his cronies. And uh, the media and the fans make it impossible for clubs to make sensible decisions. They're always hassling the club to do something immediately. So it talks about a business executive, Chris Anderson, entered soccer specifically with the aim of making the game smarter. His wife gave him a copy of Moneyball in 2009. He read it open mouth. He began blogging about soccer data. He wrote a book, The Numbers Game, 2015. He gave up his tenured job as an economist at Cornell, become managing director of the Coventry City in England's League One of Soccer. He lasted only 11 months, but uh, came away with some insights into why clubs don't think very hard. It's hard to come across a, singly, a single innovative club anywhere in soccer club that benefits from all the new knowledge in physiology, psychology, sports data, organizational science. Time is the greatest luxury in football. Uh, European soccer clubs can be relegated, which means financial disaster. Clubs in American sports are usually free from that pressure. you find innovators in some NBA teams such as the Houston Rockets, the Philadelphia 76ers. Yeah, this is a good insight. If you do everything the same as all the other clubs, then you can't be blamed or humiliated if things go wrong. So most soccer clubs are packed with people who have always done things the old way. So everyone keeps doing the same things they've done forever, even if those things have never worked out. Also, soccer has a masculine culture and a working class industry that encourages stubbornness. Now it's about uh, two o'clock on Friday afternoon here. I'm try to catch up with the, the chat. Bloody hell, phone's not cooperating. But uh, anyway, loving this book, Psychonomics. Clubs with the most freedom to innovate are the clubs with no pre-existing culture. So historically in Western countries, attitudes to bankruptcy have been harsh. I remember I had a history teacher at Sierra Community College, he got a PhD in history, and he did his PhD thesis on the very different way that America handles bankruptcy. It gives people a second chance, much more lenient than the way Europe handled bankruptcy. So in 19th century England, bankrupts were still being sent to prison. Over time, Europe has become more like America. People see bankruptcy increasingly as bad judgment. When I was a kid, I read every NFL team basically just said, hey, I'm an eight-year-old kid. Can you give me anything? And uh, they, they cooperate. Well, I'm not sure you can do it, but I would tip you just to rip your first hot takes on every Aussie rules clubs. Okay. Not a, not a huge Aussie Rules fan. Ah, I used to do that with all the TV stations. I wrote to all the sportscasters and all the leading TV stations and radio stations in San Francisco, and they all applied, replied, including the guy who called that famous uh, Cal Stanford 
game where Cal returned it for a touchdown at the last second, you know, and they ran through the Stanford Stanford band. So the radio announcer, I think Joe Starkey, he wrote me a postcard filled with tips on how to become a sports announcer. And so all the TV stations sent me autographed pictures of their sports anchors. Also, if you want to travel to England, the English embassy like just gives you tons and tons of stuff. So bankruptcy is how soccer clubs tend to stay alive. So in 1979, U.S. introduced the famous Chapter 11 provisions that protect a firm from its creditors while it tries to work out a solution that saves the business. So Britain adopted that. Later, Italy, Germany, Spain, France adopted versions of these more forgiven forgiving American bankruptcy laws, and this has proved to be a giant boon to soccer clubs. So in 1991, Ron Rhodes, chairman of Crystal Palace, said on British TV, the problem with black players, whose heavily black team had just finished third in England, is that they're great at pace, they're great athletes, they love to play with the ball in front of them, but when it's behind them, it's chaos. I don't think too many of them can read the game. When you're getting into the midwinter, you need a few of the hard white men to carry the athletic black players through. Oh, disavow. So racist. How could you say that on TV? So, this interview was one of the last flourishes of unabashed racism in British soccer. Through the 1980s, racism had been taken for granted. Pundits explained the curious absence of black players at Liverpool and Everton by saying they haven't got the bottle. So, I think bottle means strength. So no bottle is a particular favorite for black players. It means a lack of concentration. Oh, no bottle, no strength, and no stamina. Have you heard that expression, no bottle? Then lack of concentration, another racist trope about black soccer players. You don't want too many of them in your defense. They cave in under pressure. And there's a curious conviction that blacks are susceptible to the cold and won't go out when it rains. Crazy, how could people think these ridiculous racist things? So as late as 1993, you can still witness the following scene in London. God, I must prepare you, this is a, a racist scene, right? Crowd of people in a pub watching England versus Holland on TV. Every time Jamaican-born John Barnes gets the ball, one man in shirt sleeves and a tie just out of his city office makes monkey noises every time his co-workers laughed. If anyone had complained, let alone gone off to find a police officer and ask him to arrest the man, the response would have been, where's your sense of humor? Boy, I'm sure glad that we, we moved past that, that kind of racist England. Back in the 1970s, there were very few black players in English soccer. Only two clubs in the 1973-74 season fielded any black players. By 1983-84, there were 20 teams that did not field any black players. By 1989, every team fielded at least one black player. By 1992, when the Premier League was founded, only five teams did not field a black player that season. So 90% of the clubs were putting black players in the field on the first team. So almost all these black players were born in Britain, 90%. Most of them were strikers. There were 58%. There were no black goalkeepers. They were underrepresented in defense. So only 1.6% of people in the 1991 British census described themselves as black. But in the early 90s, 10% of all players in English professional soccer were black. By the end of the decade, the share was 20%. In 2021, the proportion of black players in the English Premier League was over 40%. So 
the general obsession with changing managers, same as changing coaches in American sports, is a version of the great man theory of history. The idea that prominent individuals such as a Genghis Khan or a Napoleon cause historical change. But I'll have you know, academic historians binned this theory decades ago. Right, when you look at the clubs who have won the European Cup since the competition began in 1956, all right, almost all the winners for the first 15 years were dominated by the capital cities of fascist regimes. Right, eight of the first 11 European Cups were won by Real Madrid, the favorite soccer club of General Francisco Franco, or Benfica, from the capital of Portuguese dictator Salazar. Seven of the losing teams in the first 16 finals came from fascist capitals. By the start of the 1970s, the dominance of fascist capitals was ending. The teams from Europe's remaining dictatorial capitals continued to thrive. The totalitarian capitals got off to a great start in the European Cup. The first 42 years of the European Cup, democratic capitals never won it. So, provincial soccer teams are usually the most successful because they dominate their towns. Okay. I used to have a Liverpool Dragon type t-shirt when he scored on Brazil a few cups ago. I put on my ratty Liverpool Dragon t-shirt, drag my... Oh, my balls on her face. Good times. Thanks, Michael Owen. Just a normal day in paradise. Okay. So provincial Western European cities dominate the European Cup and Champions League. Why? Okay, capitals tend to have the greatest concentration of national resources, so why do their teams, teams behave, perform so badly? And the main reason teams from democratic capital cities aren't so much up for winning. Right? No soccer club matters that much in a capital city, just like Los Angeles didn't have an NFL team for about 25 years, and it wasn't really a big deal. So in the late 1990s, a group of visiting fans from an English provincial town could wander down London's Baker Street, yelling their club songs at passers-by, so in their minds, they were shaming the Londoners, they were invading the city for a day, making all the noise. But to the Londoners, who were being shouted at, many of them were foreigners, they didn't care about or even understand the point that was being made. So London, Paris, Moscow don't need to win the Champions League in soccer. It's a different type of city where a soccer club can mean everything. You need a provincial industrial town. So these are the places that have ousted the fascist capitals as rulers of European soccer. So by 1892, all 28 English professional clubs were from the North or the Midlands. So places that were poor, that were legacies of the Industrial Revolution, and they still shape English fandom. So the combined population of Greater Merseyside, Greater Manchester, and Lancashire County is less than 5.5 million, about 10% of the English population. Don't you dare say that George W. Bush doesn't care about black people. At the end of the 2021 season, the top three teams in the Premier League table, the two Manchester teams and Liverpool, are all based in the same region. Right? They have a century of brand building. Manchester United is the most popular club on earth because Manchester had been the first industrial city on earth. 
first 43 professional soccer clubs were within. Why do you think American sports Why, why aren't they amateur? Why don't they have amateur clubs? Is that... What do you think of being amateur and collegiate? Oh, well, there are plenty of amateur and collegiate sports. Uh, they just don't attract as much attention. So, 43 soccer clubs within 90 miles of Manchester represent the greatest soccer density in the world. Almost all of Europe's best traditional soccer cities are industrial centres. Right? They're industrial centres that sucked in helpless villages, right? People came to cities that had industry to get jobs. The newcomers cast around for something to belong to and they settled on soccer. So sports and religion meet the same need for connection, right? You could move to a new city and find a synagogue or a church or you could support the soccer club, right? People want to belong. So supporting a soccer club or going to church or a synagogue helps you make a place for yourself in a new city. Real Madrid is the king of European soccer with 13 European Cups. It's the exception. All the other major powers are provincial industrial towns, Barcelona, Manchester, Turin, Munich, Milan, Inter and Hamburg. Also the smaller industrial cities, Liverpool, Glasgow, Nottingham, Birmingham, Marseille, Porto, Dortmund, Eindhoven and Rotterdam have won 16 European club. Uh, cups. Right? All these industrial cities have stories much like Manchester's. Peasants arrive from the countryside, they leave all their roots behind, they need something to belong to in the new cities. They can choose religion, but they usually choose soccer. So soccer clubs arise soon after factories. And this link between industry and soccer is universal across Europe. Industrial cities historically love their clubs most intensely. Now the Industrial Revolution has ended, you now have empty docks and factory buildings, but uh, you still have fans who love their clubs. So contrast these industrial cities with old towns with a traditional upper class street such as Oxford, Cambridge, Cheltenham, Canterbury, York and Bath. Right? They don't tend to develop serious soccer traditions. Their teams play in England's third-tier league. So upmarket towns with age-old hierarchies and few incoming peasants, people there don't need soccer clubs to root themselves. So in many people's lives, sports is the most important communal activity. About a third of Americans watch the Super Bowl, but European soccer is far more popular. In the Netherlands, right, three quarters of the population have watched Holland's biggest games. And in European countries, World Cups probably the greatest shared events of any kind. And is that the exact sequence of, of events that led uh, Trump having dinner with Nick Fuentes, who invited whom? Trump and, Trump and Kanye knew each other, and so Kanye was coming to have dinner with Trump, and then Kanye got, got contacted with Milo, who said, bring along Nick Fuentes. So, do people commit suicide after major sporting events? 
the evidence says that sports tends to save more lives than it takes because sports gives people community and meaning and purpose to their lives gives them connection so typical soccer tournament or sporting event saves hundreds of lives also sports provide an outlet for primal tribal racial and national feelings so there are a few outlets which permit open expression of tribal racial and national feelings sports is one of the few perhaps the most powerful so you have a common interest and endeavor you fuse it with nationalism you have enhanced social cohesion and decreased suicide so social cohesion that's the key phrase here that's the benefit that all sports fans get to enjoy so there are fewer suicides than the rest of us they get social cohesion from fandom winning or losing is not the point you get social cohesion even when you lose nations communities will frequently bond over a defeat in a big sporting event people cry in public they perform postmortems in the office the next morning they hunt for scapegoats together it brings people together right so losing matches does not make people in significant numbers so unhappy that they jump off buildings right Fans of long-time losers like the Chicago Cubs, Boston Red Sox, right? They didn't kill themselves more than other people. So it's not the winning that counts, but it's the taking part. It's the shared experience of sports ball that brings people together. You wear the team regalia. You watch games together in bars. You talk about the team, right? together this saves people from suicide and from loneliness there are fewer suicides in the US on Super Bowl Sundays and on other Sundays though there is more domestic violence so men tend to get agitated and beat their wives when there's sports going on but with sports you get a sense of belonging it's a lifesaver nothing brings a society together like a World Cup with your team in it Socceroos 6 a.m. Sunday here in Sydney Right? Everyone in the country is watching the same TV show, talking about it the next day at work. Part of the point of watching the World Cup is that almost everyone else is watching it too. Isolated people, the times most at risk of suicide, lonely people, are suddenly welcomed into the national conversation. They are given a social cohesion, even really awkward people, even losers. So big soccer tournaments save so many lives because we all pull together it's a universal impulse it often drags women along with it in a way that club soccer does not the only alternatives to this are probably war and catastrophe that create that sort of national unity so when john f kennedy was killed not one suicide was reported in the week after john f kennedy's murder because the whole nation pulled together in the u.s after 9-11 right had an all-time low in course of the 1-800-SUICIDE hotline. In Britain in 1997, suicides declined after Princess Diana died. So this pulling together through sports particularly suits individuals who have poor interpersonal skills, and these are characteristics of severely depressed and suicidal persons. So you do not have to be charming to be a fan among fans. Right? You can you can uh, you can be welcomed to the club so connects people
That's what sports does. That was Cowboy cheerleaders. Dalrymple denied any wrongdoing. But my phone blew up with cheerleaders I'd gotten to know during the year I spent interviewing them for the Texas monthly podcast, America's Girls. How had this happened? Had it happened other times? On sports radio and Twitter and in casual conversation, I heard questions that had dogged me since I'd started this project. Did the world still need professional cheerleaders? Did we ever? The Cowboys history books won't tell you the true origin story of the cheerleaders. The Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders began as the creation of one man, Texas E. Schramm, reads a 1984 tome on the Cowboys. Nope. Try again. General manager Tex Schramm, who helped launch the franchise in 1960, was a visionary, a former CBS executive who saw that the future of professional sports was television. And it's true, he kept the squad alive during the years when born-again coach Tom Landry wanted them gone. But the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders are actually the creation of a few women, whose innovative ideas and contributions have mostly been forgotten. Dee Brock was a woman of the world. So Tex Schramm once tried to show Tom Landry, uh, Debbie Does Dallas, and uh, Tom Landry took great offense and walked out very quickly. The world could be quite small for women. She got her PhD in literature at the University of North Texas after marrying longtime Dallas Times Herald columnist Bob Brock, with whom she had three sons. She taught high school English, though she'd later become a founding faculty member at the city's first community college, El Centro. She was uncommonly beautiful, blonde and five feet seven, and she modeled on the side. She also had a sense of humor. I don't really like girls that have that much breast. Brock remembered legendary clothier Stanley Marcus once telling her as she prepped for a Neiman Marcus fashion show. Well, I'm sorry, she replied, but there they are. Sometime before the Cowboys' second season in 1961, Schramm tapped her for a big idea. Beautiful models on the sidelines. Respectfully, Brock told him this dog wouldn't hunt. Models didn't move much, and they required money, something Shram didn't like to spend. She hatched a different plan. Recruit local high school girls. Pay them with a couple of tickets to the game. Give them some kerchiefs and pom-poms. It's free. Shram placed her in charge, and she spent the next decade trying to make this formula work. Though, ultimately, it did not. She recruited teenage boys for an experiment in co-ed cheerleading, remembered mostly for its dumb name. The Cowbells and Bow. That is one of my embarrassing moments. Brock, now in her early 90s, told me at her home in Tyler. The name was a PR guy's stunt, and sadly, it stuck. My teams were strong, not bells and bows. Okay, better get a move on. I got miles to go before shop.